Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here. It is great to be with you. I just want to say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, September 11th, 2001, kind of a big day in our history. Uh, my wife Becky was with her, her grandmother, who was 91 at the time. Uh, they had been at a gathering uh, with a, a bunch of women, about 600 women, in a, in a, in a training time that, that Tuesday, I believe, morning, Monday morning, Tuesday morning. And uh, obviously in the midst of that time, a couple of the leaders came in and announced what had just happened. And so everyone left. Uh, we had little kids at the time, and uh, Becky wanted to go home. But she had promised her grandmother, did I mention she's 91? That, um, that they were going to go to Target and get some new sheets. And so her grandmother wanted to go to Target and get new sheets. So they went to Target, and as they're looking around in the sheets section at Target with no one else there, except for, well, just a few people who are staring at the TVs that are on, Becky's super distracted, wants to get back to her kids. And, you know, her grandmother's saying, what do you think of this pattern? And do you think these are soft enough? And finally she looks at Becky and just says, honey, it's going to be okay. Now, most of us aren't 91 yet. And uh, one of the reasons why her grandmother, who was born in 1920, could look at her on this tumultuous, crazy day of 2001 and say it's going to be okay is because she had lived through the Great Depression. She had been around for Pearl Harbor. She'd seen World War II and, and Korea, and, and, the, and she'd seen all kinds of chaos in the world economy. She'd seen the, the depression and the crashing in 1980. She'd, she'd seen the, uh, the fears around the Soviet nuclear holocaust that might come upon us. She'd seen all kinds of wars, all kinds of chaos. And she looked at Becky and said, honey, it's going to be okay. Again, most of us aren't 91. Most of us haven't lived through that many things, maybe. And so we're not sure everything's going to be okay, right? And these are some pretty unprecedented times, and we're not quite sure exactly what will unfold in the weeks and months ahead. Some of you got the news that you're not going to be having your kids go back to school this week. And that has thrown a wrench in several of y'all's lives. I, I know, I know. And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a mess for some of y'all. And and I just want to say it's going to be okay. And, but I'm not, I want to say it because, hey, listen, bad things happen and eventually you get over them. I want to say it in light of something far more significant, even more significant than 91 years of life. And that is that as we look at the, the, the thread, the movement, the trajectory of the scriptures, they remind us and tell us that there's a bigger story at play. That from the very beginning, from page one, God has been on a mission. He's been living out a purpose. He's been, he's been cascading history forward with his redemptive, loving, purposeful movement towards his people. And that is centering that is the thing that can allow us to say it's going to be okay, even at times when it's not okay. We're in the middle of a, a new series called One Story. Uh, the big idea is that the Bible is one unified story that is leads that leads to Jesus, that points to Jesus in every turn, in every page. It's leading and pointing toward Jesus. We talked about how Jesus, in a sense, said that about himself in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. He says, and beginning with Moses, talking to his disciples, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Moses and the prophets, that, that basically all of scriptures is pointing to him. That's what we talked about last week. And what I mentioned to you, let you know, is that we're going to be taking a year-long trek through the scriptures together. 
We're going to walk through every page of the Bible as a community uh, starting in September. So before we do that, what we wanted to do is to do a flyover. We're going we're to fly the whole length of the scriptures in six weeks, and then we're going to get back on, come all the way back to the beginning, get off the plane, and walk every step of the pages of the story of scripture together. And one of the advantages of doing a flyover like this is that once you get to some of the weird sections potentially or, or confusing sections, let's say in, in Leviticus, you can know where you are. You can be like, I remember flying over this. It's confusing, but I know where I am. You might find yourselves in the pages of Ecclesiastes going like, what is he saying? And realizing, okay, wait, wait, I think I know where I am. So that's one of our purposes is to orient us around the reality of where we'll be when we're all the way on the ground. But more significantly is we need to be reminded once again that because of Jesus, because all things point to him and by him and to him and through him are all things that it's going to be okay. We can be centered there as we walk through the long story of the narrative of the Bible together. And so today we're going to begin with Moses, as Jesus did. And we're going to look at the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, if uh, that's the, my best Hebrew. Um, and we're going to look at it uh, through kind of a, a narrative perspective. Then we're going to look about it, look at it through a Jesus perspective. And then we're going to look at it from our lives perspective. So from narrative perspective, you're really left in these five books of the Bible with a kind of a prologue, like a little pre-prologue. And you're going to thinking, there's a prologue in the Bible. And, and then you've got Acts 1 and Act 2. Act 1 and Act 2. So there's a prologue, Act 1, Act 2. That's kind of how to look at the first five books of the Bible. Now, the prologue, and you might think... Are you allowed to say prologue about the first 11 chapters of the Bible when there's like, I don't know, creation and fall and, and this flood and like all these massive events? Well, if you think about the, the, the narrative of the entire scriptures, there is, in a sense, a setup to all that unfolds. And this prologue walks through these first 11 chapters from starting with creation. Chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, and if you've ever read your Bible, you probably got through those two. And so you probably have a good idea about the story of Adam and Eve and how God created the world and created this mission for his people that they would, that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would fill the earth, that they would have dominion over it, that they would rule, be co-regents with God, this incredible vision of purpose and meaning. And page three, it all falls apart. Kind of a, like a quick drop-off from a narrative standpoint. And the judgment of God comes as man, as, as Adam and Eve rebel against God and choose their own way and, and judgment comes on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent and on the ground. But from the beginning, what we see is immediately there's a thread of grace. There's, there's an immediate promise from God for the long story that's about to unfold in Jesus Christ. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As he's speaking to the serpent, the evil one, the one who has brought sin into the world, it says, I will. By the way, that's the language of promise. That's God declaring, I'm going to do something. Not you will. No, 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 no. I will. The language of promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this is the future promised offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, and he shall bruise his heel. So there's, there's judgments, there's the fall, all things die or begin to die, but in the midst of that there is hope. There's, the story of redemption begins immediately 
with a promise. Things cascade from the individual to the family. And, and, and even we look at Cain, and, and Cain kills Abel. And, and the judgment on Cain is that he's going to be a wanderer. He's going to be cast out. He's going to wander the earth. But there's a thread of grace there, too. There's going to be a mark on Cain. He should die. But God says, I'm going to put a mark on you, and no one will touch you. The hints of grace already. Chapter 6 through 10 talks about all the, the preparations for the flood, that, that, that evil has gotten out of hand. It's gone from the individual in the garden to the family, and now it's the entire community, the entire human race. And it says that everyone is doing evil all the time. And it says every thoughts and intentions of the heart are evil. All the, like that, that's pretty pervasive. So the judgment of God comes and, and wipes away all mankind alive at that time, but once again, there's a thread of grace. There's, there's Noah and his family. And, and so the promise continues on. The promise is made to Noah. And, and, and as soon as they get off the boat, and, and it's like, how cool, restart. There's a, there's a fresh start. There's an opportunity to be able to say, hey, we learned some things from what. There, there's, a, there's a drunk Noah naked in his tent. And, and next thing you know, things are devolving again. And instead of following and listening to the mandate of God to go and, and fill the earth, and everyone gathers around one area and says, we're going to become like God. We're going we're to make a name for ourselves. And so they build this tower and say, this is going to be the thing that rallies all of us together. And so as they reject the mission of God, God rejects their purpose and scatters them by changing all of their voice, their, their languages, and all the chaos that emerges. And all the, the gods begin to emerge from the different tribes with their different languages. Sin has infected everything at this point. And so what in the world is God going to do? What God does is he goes in a different direction. He, in act one, he moves towards a new promise with a new people. He chooses one man and one family to bring about the kind of redemption that is needed in the world. He looks at Abram, who would be called Abraham, and says, listen, Abraham, there's I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And, and you're going to be a blessing to every family, every tribe, every nation in the world. I'm going to start with you, and it's going to go everywhere. And so Genesis narrative from chapters 12 to 50 are basically the descendants of Abraham who have received this promise that there's as many as the, the stars in the sky or as many as the sand on the ground, there's going to be this incredibly great nation that's going to be born out of this person, Abraham. And, and that, that promise goes on to Isaac, and, and God repeats it to Isaac. And, and, of course, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. That's like not multiplication. That's like almost subtraction. And then Isaac, and he has two sons. It's like, woohoo! now we're moving forward. We're heading towards a nation here, by the way. Takes a minute. And, and then Isaac um, has, again, Jacob and, and Esau. And then Esau, I'm saying Jacob has 12 sons. Okay, so maybe if we'd started 12 earlier, we'd be moving faster. But everything is a little bit slow, it seems, in Genesis. And God is not in a hurry. And the purposes of God, the plans of God, they're just not in a hurry. He's not late. But he's not in a hurry. He's growing something. We find ourselves hearing 50 different times God repeating the promise, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You will be a blessing. You get to the end of Genesis, 
and this promised nation has a total of 70 people in it. So it's kind of haven't gotten very far towards what we need for a nation. Because what do you need for a nation? Well, you need, you need a lot of people, right? You need, you need a ton of people. A multitude would be preferable. And you, you need a leader. You need, you need some kind of a constitution of some sort. And, and you need a land. And at the end of Genesis, they have none of those things. No people, no land, no constitution, and no leader. Between Abraham, I'm sorry, between Joseph and the beginning of Exodus chapter 1, beginning of Act 2, 400 years go by. And during those 400 years, in the, the gift of an incubator, which was Egypt, because the Egyptians wanted nothing to do with the Hebrews, they wouldn't intermarry like all the other peoples would, they didn't want to touch the Hebrews. And so the Hebrews, the, God, the people of God, grew and grew and multiplied and multiplied until they became a problem. We started by ha not having enough babies. Now we've got too many babies. And so we see at the beginning of, Ex of Exodus chapter, chapter 1 that Pharaoh's trying to get rid of the babies. And he wants to put an end to this dream of a nation that God has put into place and has promised. And, and Moses is introduced to us. And Moses grows up, as you know, having been rescued from the Nile, grows up 40 years in the household of Pharaoh, this preparation for what must be. And then he takes off after making some interesting decisions out into the desert for 40 years of training next to sheep which is also a good training for what's about to unfold for him. And he meets God at the burning bush, and God says, I'm not done with the dream. I'm not done with the promise. I'm sending you back. It's time. It's time for me to gather this nation to myself because I have purposes for it to accomplish. And so he gathers, he sends, um, he sends Moses back to Egypt. And, of course, the ten plagues unfold, the final plague being the plague of the firstborn, where every firstborn in Egypt dies but none of those from the people of Israel because of the Passover lamb. So if you're familiar with the Passover lamb, it's a, the spreading of the blood of one innocent across the top of the, top of the um, threshold and the, the sideboards, and, and it protected the firstborn of all of those in Israel, and, and, and Pharaoh lets his, the people go. Two million people. We got a multitude. But we don't have a nation. We have a leader and a multitude, but we still don't have a nation. We have a people on the move. We still don't have a nation. And, of course, the Red Sea ends up being the final rescue move of God to say, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to put distance between you and the Egyptians. We're heading to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I'm giving you a vision of where we're heading, and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to do incredible things through you, a reaffirmation of the promise he'd made. We find the people of of Israel having come across the sea, celebrating who God is, getting to the where God is going to do something special at the foot of Mount Sinai. He says, okay, you've got a leader and you've got a multitude, but now you need a constitution. You need a way of life that is going to be particular to you as my people. And so it's the, con it's the um, constitutional convention of one. He, he puts together all the laws, writes all the rules, and, and gives them to his people right there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that takes us all the way through the end of Exodus and, and all the way through Leviticus. So when you're in Leviticus and there's all these, all these sacrifices and all these purity rites and all these festivals, this is God saying, you need to become my people and you'll never be my people unless you understand my heart. And so I'm going to give you my law and my law is going to tell you what I'm like. Not only is it going to tell you what I'm like, but it's going to let you know that when you approach me, it can be well with your soul, that you can be in my presence and that you don't have to fear. 
which is true of no other God in the world at that time. You make an offering, a sacrifice, I don't know, he's fickle. I mean, she's fickle. Who knows if she'll do? I mean, here's a grain offering. Maybe we'll receive grain. But God's saying, no, you want to know that you know that you know. Here are the means by which you can know that, that grace is available to you, that, that we can be in fellowship, in communion with one another, that it can be well with your soul. That's what all those laws are for. It's so that you know where you're standing. So they can seem trivial to us in many ways, but at any given moment when you're cooking your food and you're about to throw in some pork, let's say, you go, no bacon today. No, because I'm choosing to walk in the way of the Lord. This is pleasing to him. I know that this pleases him because I'm choosing him instead of choosing the ways of the others. And so they knew. They had means and avenues to be able to say, I know that it can be well when I've sinned. I can turn over to the Lord, this, this lamb, and it, and it can be well, and he'll cover. He says he'll cover my sins for this. This is... And I can know that I know that I know that it's okay. So rules about all the priests come, and this entire constitution unfolds before the people. And they spend about a year and some change, about up to two years, right there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then God says, okay, it's time to go. It's time to enter. You've now, you've now received the constitution. All we're missing now is the land. And you can be a nation. And we can move towards becoming a great nation, which is what I promised to Abraham. Because I'm doing something. I'm, we're heading towards someone through this nation. And, and it doesn't go great in Numbers. Um, numbers is basically a book about rebellion, about saying I don't want to do it the way you want to do. And to come up to the edge of the promised land and God says, go in, scout it out, and you're going to know it's going to be amazing. And 10, 12 go out and... Two come back, say it's great. The other ten say it's terrible. And everyone says, we listen to the ten, take us back to Egypt. We're afraid. And God says, you do not trust me. I will go before you. My I will is what you trust in. Not your thou shalt. No, trust in my I will. And they, and they don't. And their faith, their faith falters. And, and God sends them to meander and wander in the desert for 38 years to die in the desert, an entire generation to die in the desert. And in that, rebellion after rebellion, rejection after rejection, brings the people of Israel after 38 years, after an entire generation has died, to the edge, the other side of the edge of the promised land, the east side in Moab. And two million sitting there across the Jordan from the promised land. And Deuteronomy begins three long sermons, which is basically... Owens is saying, hey, all y'all are new. You were young. You probably weren't paying attention in Sunday school. I'm going to remind you exactly what God said to be as a people. Let me help you know how it can be well with you. And so he preaches these three long sermons to the people. And over and over he says, do not forget. Fourteen times he says, remember. Thirteen times he says, don't forget. It's the theme of the book. Remember, remember, remember. Remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what it means to follow him. And there they are with the Jordan River separating them from the promised land and from becoming a nation. God has forged them and prepared them, and it's time to enter and take possession of it. And that's where the books of Moses end, anticipating a promised land they haven't touched yet. They've been told about it. They've, they know how to walk in it. They have a constitution, they have a new leader, and that's where they wait, and that's where they walk in. And that's where Deuteronomy ends. But as we said last week, if you take a, 
take the Bible and think of it as a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. It's a great, Art Vanderveen used this illustration years ago. I always loved it. You look at all the pieces, you're not sure what they make, but if you look at the cover of the box, the cover of the box is always the face of Jesus. All the pieces come together to create one face, and, and throughout the entire five books of the early, of the, of, of the Bible, we see the face of Jesus, the hints of Jesus, the shadows of what the Christ Messiah would be like. From the very beginning, we see him as creator God. John, John 1, uh, 1 strikes a parallel to Genesis 1. In the beginning, it says, was the Word, who is Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was there at the beginning. He, he is creator God. Jesus, Messiah, creator. Right there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. As I already said, he's the bruised heel, right? He's the one who will be bruised. He will be wounded while he crushes the head to death of evil and sin and death itself. He's shadowed in the ark of deliverance who brings buoyancy and brings the people of God above the flood of destruction of sin. Brings them to safe harbor, initiates a new people. Jesus is, he's the manna, the manna in the desert, that which came from heaven and fed the Israelites for decades. And Jesus will later stand in, in John chapter 6 and look out at the people after he's fed them and say, listen, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. I'm the better manna. Your fathers ate and died, but I'm the one who can give you life. He's, he's a picture of Aaron. I gave you several examples la last week of, of pictures of Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. But he's, he's the better Aaron, right? The high priest, the, the brother of, of Moses who, who took the fire of incense when the plague was breaking out and killing people all through the camp and ran out into the middle of the camp and, and stopped the plague. And it says he stood before between life and death. And Jesus is the better Aaron who didn't go out with an incense to stand between life and death. He hung between life and death to bring ultimate rescue from the ultimate spiritual plague of death. He's the true Passover lamb, of course. He is the, the one sacrifice for all time, not the one that has to be repeated according to Hebrews. He's the living tabernacle that's not built by hands, but that's built in the, by God in whom the very presence, the very image of God dwells among his people. Again, John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and literal Greek tabernacled among us. Like he's a better tent for the for the presence and the glory of God to show up for us. What, what this means is that when we're reading about the tabernacle, we think about Jesus, who's the better tabernacle, you see? It, it, it loses potentially some of its mundaneness. It's like he's this beautiful. It's this purposeful. It's this pivotal. He tabernacled among us, the glory of the Lord in the, in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Yes, this is a story about Israel, but it's more than that. It's a story that shadows the very Jesus Christ. The one who through the man, through the family, through the tribe, through the nation, through the great nation would be Messiah to fulfill all the promises of God. You see, the, the arc of the, of the Old Testament is, is promise, 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 promise. Fulfillment in Christ, fulfillment in Christ, fulfillment in Christ, fulfillment in Christ. That's, that's what we get to see over and over and over. And it's, we see it a ton in the first five books of the Bible. And, and Paul summarizes it and he says in 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God. What we see is this thread of grace that even in the darkest day, whether it's from Adam to Cain to, to, to Babel to, 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 the, to, the, to Egypt to famines to, to, to rebellion in the desert, there's this thread of grace. There's, there's always a way in which God brings redemption and there's this progress from one step to another. But the other thing that we see throughout, the other theme that exists throughout the Torah, which is beyond just the story of the people of Israel, it's not just a history book, is a story in which we can see ourselves. How do we know that, honey, it's going to be okay? Well, we know because like Abraham, we've been chosen. And not because of our merit, not because of, not because of your, 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 not because of your pedigree, because of grace. But you were chosen. Ephesians 1 says that he chose us in him, before the foundations of the world. He, he predestined, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to, some of my favorite words, according to the kind intention of his will. The, like, the words of Genesis 3.15 come out of the kind intention of his will for you and for me, and it's from the beginning to today. You've been chosen like Abraham. We've also been rescued like Israel, not from physical slavery, but from slavery to sin and death. We've been brought out by the blood of a Passover lamb. As Numbers and Leviticus point out, we have a, a high priest who has in himself made us holy so that now we can live holy lives by his power, for, for his purposes. Holy, not because of you, because you know you. I, I don't know you all that well, but I suspect not so holy, but in him, holy. And able to live holy and, and, and live the kind of lives in front of people that invite a question, that put on display the glory of God. First Peter 2 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, do you hear, do you hear those, that language? He's talking to his fellow believers. And he says, you're, you're a chosen race, Genesis. You're, you're a royal priesthood, Leviticus. You're a holy nation, a, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, that's what it means to be the people of God. That's what it means that he's a, a, a promise-fulfilling God. And how do we do that on an ongoing basis? 
where people of Deuteronomy were remembering people, where, where the people who stand on the edge and look into a promised land that's not quite here yet, but is coming. And, and we know that it's filled with milk and honey and a whole lot better than that because of what he's hinted at, what he's pointed to, and, and it's being prepared for us by, by the Messiah himself. Like that's, we have that hope which, which grounds us when the world starts moving around and shaking. And, and on top of that, we have the remembrance that all that's been done for us. So we remember, we look ahead, and we remember, we look ahead, and we remember, and we stand right here in the middle where everything is moving. And we say, I know this, and I know this, and so it can be well today. That's how you know that it's going to be okay today. And, and whatever has come your way in the past week, month, or ten years, that it can be okay because the whole entire story is pointing to the one who's made it okay. And that's one of the reasons why we come to the table every week is to, be remem to remember and to look ahead. Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I come back again. So do you see yourself in this story? I hope you do. I hope with increasing measure you see yourself in the story of the gospel written throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And if you don't, just know that you can. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And what he says after that is like, anyone who comes to me, I, I will not cast them off. I will take them to myself that anyone the Father has given me that I will receive them and, and they will no longer be hungry and they will no longer thirst. They will know it is well with their soul. So we come this morning and we take the cup and we take the bread and, and we remember the manna that came from heaven. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is my blood shed for you. And it, it just, see how it just takes us right back into the first five books of the Bible. I'm, I'm here as a representation of what has been true all along, that this was all about me and it's all for you. To the glory of God. Let's pray. Father.